Hello, good morning, Efree. I am so excited to share with you all this morning. Uh, I know that you all probably have really busy, like Super Bowl plans after this, parties, orders you need to pick up, and so don't worry. I know you, you're busy this afternoon, so today's message is going to be extra long. So don't worry about that. <laughs> uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, I'm actually no. I, I am really excited to preach on Baptism Sunday and to worship as a you know as one body with our youth group, the Ascent, in the back corner over there. Shout out to you guys. <laughs> um, and since we're having this kind of joint youth service today, I thought I could bring a little bit of youth group to main service, and that's doing something we do on Sundays by giving you a little icebreaker question, a little question of the day. So maybe you could share with your neighbors around you, or if you're online, you can type in a, type in a comment on the live stream. Uh, our icebreaker question of the day is, what is a meal that reminds you of home? What is a meal that reminds you of home? And maybe after 20, 30 seconds of sharing, I'll get my strong extroverts like Yin Suzuki and uh, Kristen Neal to kind of share if they want to. <laughs> but uh, yeah, 30 seconds. What is a meal that reminds you of home? Go ahead and share. All right, all right. I know, I know a lot of you all shared. I'm sure you all shared some really great answers. All right, if I could. And time. <laughs> Three, two, one. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. <laughs> okay, no. Uh, anyone have a meal that they share, that they want to share, that reminds them of home? Yeah? We had a couple people. Somebody shared miso salmon, which was really cool. Uh, I remember when, you know, growing up, Asian-American family here in California, there were certain meals that reminded me of home. And when I moved to Chicago in the Midwest, I met my wife, uh, Kelly, who is not Asian-American, if you know her. Uh, she's from Wisconsin, and she shared me this exotic dish from her home known as casseroles. So it was a really awesome dish to, like, I was like, there's rice in here. This is amazing. Um, yeah. But home is really a powerful idea, right? Home is a powerful idea. It can bring kind of like a sense of safety and security, maybe a sense of love and trust. And the Bible knows this and makes this deep connection between people and place. The first human being, Adam, is actually named after the ground that God creates him from. Because in Hebrew, the word for ground there is Adama. So Adam is made after the Adama, connections between people and place. But I think we all know, and I'm sure in a room this size, a lot of us have stories of home being disrupted. There's a lot of people who don't experience the safety and security or love and trust of a home. Maybe that safety and security of your home was broken by someone you love and trust, actually. Maybe even... Maybe your family uh, or, or even individuals here in this room, actually, you yourself, immigrated from another country. So you left your home to find a new home and experienced how difficult it was to be an immigrant in this country. My gr own grandparents, actually, uh, they lived through the Japanese occupation of Korea. So while the Japanese government was 
occupying Korean land, they were forced to speak Japanese, learn Japanese. Uh, my grandma even shared like how what if she spoke Japanese in public, she would get yelled at, sometimes even hit. Um, and then soon after that, after uh, the Korean War, she saw her country split in half into North and South Korea. And I remember her sharing this really briefly, really quickly, just once. She didn't share, talk about this ever, because it was painful. But just with tears in her eyes, sharing how when she heard the country was split in half, that she knew she would never see her brothers who were stuck on the northern side of the country ever again. Right. Uh, when something is disrupted, we tend to reach out for something, anything that can provide safety and comfort, just something familiar. In a place like Diamond Bar, I think the things we tend to reach, like I think there's this mindset that, you know, I'm going to I'm going to live and raise my kids here in Diamond Bar because they have good schools. If my kid goes to a good school, they'll get into a good college. Get into a good college, you can have a good job, make a lot of money, and then they can have a good life. And then their kids can go to good schools, go to good colleges, get a good job, and have a good life. But what happens when home itself, the place that's meant to be this source of comfort, of security is actually removed. Like I said, the Bible recognizes the connection between people and place, but what's incredible is that moments in the biblical story when people leave home is actually when God does his most powerful kingdom work. When we're willing to leave the safety and security of home, that's when God does his most powerful kingdom work. If you have your Bibles today, go to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. We're going to be in a few different passages today, but we'll start here in Genesis 12. Genesis 12 reads this. Uh, we'll have it up here on the screen too. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, from your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth, all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So in Genesis, Abraham is called by God, as you see here, to leave his father's household, to leave his people, to leave his country, to leave his community to inherit God's blessings. These blessings are known as the Abrahamic covenant, right? So these blessings include a promised land, his descendants becoming a great nation, or even kingdom, if you will, for the purpose so that they can be a blessing to others. And this is kind of the basic context of the first five books of the Bible, of what's known as the Torah, right? Will God fulfill these promises made to Abraham? So when the Israelites are in under 400 years of enslavement in, in Egypt, out of the promised land, it's asking, is God going to fulfill his promise? When they're wandering for 40 years in the book of Numbers, in the wilderness, the question is, is God going to fulfill his promise? And so when we get to the book of Deuteronomy, Israel is about to enter into the promised land. And God is essentially telling them, here is what it means to be my people, and God's design for his kingdom, as you see here, is that his people would be, that he chooses a people to be blessed so that they can share those blessings with others. God's people are blessed so that they can be a blessing to others. And this is from the top down. 
it's not just meant for like the like just the, your normal everyday citizens. It's also meant and expected for the kings of Israel as well. In Deuteronomy 17, we won't go there, but God actually gives very specific provisions for how their kings should rule. He tells them, don't depend on your military might. Don't depend on your wealth. Don't depend on your status because those were the tools of Egypt. I rescued you and redeemed you from Egypt. So don't rely on those tools. That's what I rescued you out of. And unfortunately, if you know the rest of the biblical story, that is exactly what Israel's kings do. They accumulate excessive power, they accumulate excessive wealth, and they move further and further away from God's word, and they move closer and closer to idolatry and injustice. Eventually, civil war splits the country into a southern kingdom, Judah, and a northern kingdom, Israel. Northern kingdom, Israel is conquered by the Assyrians. Uh, and things snowball in the southern kingdom, too. They snowball, they build, they build, they build to the point that God raises up a people called the Babylonians to bring Israel into an exile. An exile is when one is kind of like barred from their own country, essentially. Right? And a forced exile is when someone basically forces you to leave your own country. So Babylon implemented an exile by tearing down Israel's walls. Like, you're so proud of your power and strength? Well, how about I tear down these walls you're so proud of? They removed Israel from Jerusalem, the capital city. You're so proud of this land you inherited? What if we take you out of it and put you in Babylon? And the temple, which housed God's very presence itself, is actually destroyed. But exile didn't actually stop there. Exile actually becomes a cultural exercise as well. They, Israel is forced to wear clo uh, Babylonian clothes, practice Babylonian customs, take on Babylonian names, speak the Babylonian language. Right? It, it, this is kind of what the book of Daniel wrestles with and deals with in its context. Right? So if the Torah was asking the question, is God going to fulfill his promises to Abraham? Exile is dealing with the question is, what does it mean to be God's people when we don't have a home? What does it mean to be God's people when we don't have a home? Israel's probably felt like we've just lost our land. We've just lost our identity as a people. Are we still God's people? And at a deeper level, because a temple which has God's presence has been destroyed and they're out of the land, they're maybe even asking something else. They're maybe asking, is God even still with us today? To answer that question, we'll look at the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was, oh, Jeremiah 29, if you want to jump ahead. Jeremiah was a prophet in Israel's day. He ministered kind of in the final years of Israel's southern kingdom, Judah, and during the exile. So he was called by God to preach against Israel's idolatry and injustice, and basically would preach this message, turn, repent, return from your idolatry, return from your ways of injustice so that you can be the blessing to the nations that God has always asked us, has wanted us to be. And so he actually predicted that the Babylonians would come and destroy Jerusalem if they didn't repent of idolatry and injustice. And so he witnessed firsthand Jerusalem be destroyed and Israel be deported en masse to Babylon. So a lot of you might know Jeremiah 29 from uh, verse 11. Jeremiah 29, 11. Is that a verse that anyone's here familiar with before? No? It's a pretty po well-known popular verse. It's kind of like a Hobby Lobby verse. Like you kind of see it when you walk in there. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, it says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, 
to give you a future and a hope. And I often hear this verse, uh, and I've even, even applied this verse in this way, uh, in seasons of great transition. Like when my wife and I moved from Chicago uh, to California where my family is, like that was a season of great transition where we're kind of like trusting in God's plan for us. College, or, uh, our seniors in high school might kind of hear this verse as they're about to go into college. Like, what college does God want me to go to? What does God want me to do with my life? Maybe some of you who have had to go through transition in the past couple of years have asked, what is God's plan for my life? And that is a true thing, that God does have a plan for us all. But if that's our only takeaway from Jeremiah 29, then we've kind of done this passage a disservice. And so I hope today that at the very least, something you'll take away from is to read Jeremiah 29 in its fuller context. Read from verse 4 to verse 11. All right, that's, my, that's my hope today. So that's what we'll do. Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 4. This is Jeremiah speaking to the Israelites. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, live in them, Plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters to marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. This is a really cool part. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, don't let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. It is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I didn't send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, I will fulfill to you my promises, and bring you back to this place. Because I know I have the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. You might have noticed there, there's a word that popped up in the version that we had up here, welfare, that comes up. Maybe in your Bible it says something like peace. Maybe it says something like prosper or prosperity. Uh, that is a Hebrew word. And by the way, you don't need to know Hebrew to read the Bible. Uh, but that is a Hebrew word that refers to, that, uh, that is a Hebrew word known as shalom. Maybe you've heard shalom before. It's often translated as peace, but it's not just our definition of peace where violence stops. It's also the idea, it's used to describe uh, peace with God that happens when uh, sacrifices are made to God. It refers to relationships being restored. It's even actually used to describe like buildings being restored and fixed, shalom. It's, all, it's really understood really as like completeness, wholeness, Right? The idea that something is whole or complete or even restored and that it's functioning the way that God has designed it and intended it to. And what Jeremiah is preaching against is this idea that shalom is meant to just be this personal thing. It's meant to just be this very, very personal idea because what Jeremiah is actually say, seeing, we can kind of see it here in verse 7 actually, um, you can almost kind of read this passage in this way. Seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its shalom you will find your shalom. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for shalom and not for evil. 
God's people were always intended to be a blessing because of the blessings they receive. Right? And yet some, even at Jeremiah's day, there were these false prophets who were preaching this idea that, well, you know what God's going to do? God's going to come to Babylon. He's going to take us out of there. He's going to wipe out these Babylonians, and we're going to get to go back to the land. We're going to get our blessings back, and he's going to show them who he is because he chose us. We are his special people. And what Jeremiah is saying is, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't, you're not going anywhere. You're in exile. Buckle up. Build houses. Plant gardens. Have kids. Let your kids have kids. Because in doing so, that's how you are seeking the shalom of the city that I sent you. And notice whose shalom Israel is meant to seek. The shalom of the city. That city is not Israel. It's not Jerusalem. It's the city that they're in exile in. Israel is called to seek the shalom of Babylon. It's a difficult calling. One theologian I really admire who kind of talks about this idea between Israel's false prophets and prophets like Jeremiah, uh, he, talks, he calls it the identity of chosenness versus the identity of exceptionalism. You know, exceptionalism and chosenness, they sound similar, but exceptionalism is kind of the idea that because there's something unique about me, right, that is why God has chosen me, right? But I'll, I'll highlight some differences here, right? Chosenness says God chooses us out of his love and desire for us. Exceptionalism says there must be something great in me, and that's why God chose me. Chosenness says God has chosen me for his purposes. Exceptionalism says because I am exceptional, I know what's best. Right? Chosenness says I am chosen and loved by God so that others may know his love. Exceptionalism says I am exceptional and I am going to hold on to my exceptionalism by any means necessary. Chosenness says, seek the shalom of your neighbor. Exceptionalism says, find your shalom above all else. So essentially, Jeremiah is responding to this confusion between chosenness and exceptionalism by saying, do you want, know what it means to be God's people? Do you know what it means to be God's people even in the midst of exile? It means that you seek the shalom of the city that you're in. Uh, I know that growing up in Orange, I grew up in Orange County, so kind of lo local to here. Uh, I feel like I often heard a message of exceptionalism growing up. I would hear it from teachers, I would hear it from parents, I would hear it from my aunts and uncles. You know, like, hey, you have access to great schools. These are some of the best schools in the country. So you have a pathway to do great things with your life. I would hear from my parents saying, you know, Kevin, we really struggled and had really hard lives as immigrants. And they did. They, they, their lives were hard because they were immigrants. But it was because you were born here in America, you have so many opportunities that I never had. Take advantage of them, right? Be excellent. Uh, and so I, I kind of did internalize this message of exceptionalism a little bit. I used to kind of think, yeah, I did go to good schools. I did learn a lot. And it went from I went went to good schools to, yeah, I am really smart, which, is, which isn't really true, but. Uh, and I remember when I moved to Chicago, and I served at a ministry in Chicago, and this was in a lower income area. The schools were not as good as Orange County schools. They were not as quote unquote safe as Orange County neighborhoods. And 
I remember hearing a story about a student who used to be part of our ministry. It was a high school, junior high, and children's outreach. And we had a student who had left our ministry, was a high school student, and she had been valedictorian of her high school. I, myself, was a perpetual B student pretty much my whole life, uh, so not a valedictorian, um, but Bs, right? And I remember hearing her, uh, the student story, and because of her environment where she was in, she was told, work hard, and you can make something of your life. Work hard, and you can do something great with your life. And so she worked hard. She didn't go to parties. She didn't get mixed up in bad crowds with temptations and with, um, with risks that our students, frankly, are, and like myself included, are not even not remotely aware of. And she kept her nose to the grindstone. She worked hard. And she ended up being valedictorian of her high school. But when she applied to colleges, she was rejected from every single college that she applied to. Flip it around to me as like perpetual B student, right? Uh, I was a B student. I was able to go to SAT prep so I could like learn how to take the SAT and then do really well on the SAT so I could kind of like uh, balance out my like mediocre B GPA, right? And I got accepted into every single college that I applied to, actually. I didn't get a rejection letter. But the key difference here was that because I went to Orange County schools and was born in Orange County, right, something I had no control of over myself, colleges said, oh, well, you got B's in Orange County, so we'll accept you. Whereas because what she was applying from public schools in Chicago, they said, I know you were valedictorian, I know you got A's, but your school does not meet the requirements that we are looking for. Exceptionalism in that situation would say, well, I didn't force that girl to be born there. That's not my problem or responsibility, right? What can I do about it? I'm in Orange County, she's in Chicago. Right? Chosenness says, I understand that I have things that I don't deserve. God, how do I address the lack of shalom in our world around us? Later in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, um, the Jesus, Acts is a sequel to the book of Luke, and Jesus has essentially just been resurrected from the dead. And he's hanging out with the disciples and teaching them and sharing with them for about 40, for 40 days. Imagine this, like you're hanging out with the resurrected Jesus for 40 days, right? And his disciples were Jewish people. They came from a, they were an Old Testament people. They knew the promises of restoration. They knew God's promises really, really well. And so they've just seen their leader, their Messiah, raise, be resurrected from the dead, right? While their land, Jerusalem, is being occupied by the Roman government. And so they're thinking, God, are you going to restore the kingdom? Is, is this when you're going to restore the kingdom? Is this about to happen right now, right? Like, the, is this the end of the exile, essentially? And Jesus gives them an answer. It's a really interesting answer. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in all Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's not really, a, it's not really the yes they were looking for. They're probably thinking like, what, what does this mean? Right? Later on in chapter 2, the disciples would gather in Jerusalem for what's known as the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. 
uh, this festival came right after the Passover and was a festival for outsiders and marginalized people in the community. Uh, people, uh, the people were told, do not overpick the grain from your harvest. Leave some, leave some of the harvest for your most vulnerable, for your outsiders, right? For foreigners and widows and strangers, right? Leave enough grain for them to pick as well. This is kind of the basis for the book of Ruth, actually. Ruth, go, as a Gentile, goes into Boaz's field because they've left enough grain for her to pick as well. Right? And then all of a sudden, what we see in Acts chapter 2 is that a gust of wind blows. Tongues of fire come down and begin to rest on the heads of the disciples. And this is a sign of God's Old Testament presence. Because when God guided Israel, it was through a cloud and a pillar of fire. Right? So God's presence is no longer just in the temple. God's presence is actually in the people. Right? And then they begin to preach the word. And we see something really, really cool when what happens when they begin to preach the word. Because at this time, you have Jews from all over the known world, diaspora, diasporic Jewish people, Jewish people of the exile, gathering in Jerusalem for the feast, feast of Pentecost. And this really cool thing happens. So Acts chapter 2 in verse, uh, verse, five, uh, verse 6. When they had come together, they asked him, or sorry, not verse 6, I'm... I'm on my phone today because I lost my Bible between services, actually. Um, yeah, sorry. Acts chapter 2, verse 5. They were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of this, at, at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished and saying, Are not all of these men who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language. So these listeners were Jewish people who weren't from Jerusalem. They had been scattered because of the exile, because of the diaspora, right? And so a lot of them probably culturally did not feel like they fit into a Jewish context, even though they're in the capital city, Jerusalem, right now. Uh, I kind of compared, I, I, I kind of compared a little bit to kind of being like Korean-American a little bit, being multicultural, where uh, a lot of times throughout my life, I have felt like I don't fit into Korean culture, and then I also don't fit into American culture as well. So here in America, oftentimes I'll get asked the question, where are you from? And I'll say, I'm from California. And then a, a quick follow-up question that maybe some of you know, well, no, 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 where are you really from? And I go, I'm from Orange County. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. And, and yet at the same time, I do know that if I were to go back to Korea, there's no way that I could really fully call that my home. I've been born and raised in America. I only speak English. Um, they, and they would actually refer to me as what's called a kyopo. A kyopo is someone who is Korean, but like is outside of Korea. So it's almost like they're Korean, but they're not truly Korean. I wonder if these Jewish people of the diaspora who are here might have felt like kyopos in their own context. They might have spoken Hebrew with an accent, right? Uh, and yet at the same time, when they hear the gospel preached by the disciples, they hear them in their own language. A lot of times people from multicultural contexts, like myself, will feel this tension. Do I belong to Korea or do I belong to America? Which culture do I belong to? And what we see here is that this tension, right, in these diasporic Jews, in their identity, 
their, their attention as chosen people, but also exiles who have been raised in another context, it isn't wiped away. It's actually redeemed to create something new. Their multicultural identity isn't a hindrance. It's actually part of how they act as God's redemptive witness. And it's almost like God is just saying, hey, here, there is room at the table for you. And when we see the rest of the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit falls again and again, it's on those people that, God, that Jesus outlines in Acts chapter 1. It's not just falling in Jerusalem. It's falling in Judea. It's falling in Samaria. And it's falling on the ends of the earth. The table, there is room at the table. Being a, um, being a redemptive witness doesn't mean that I witness to people so that they look more like me. Being a redemptive witness means that we see a person who bears God's image. We see a person who bears God's image but is also effective by sin, who carries good and also evil, right? And we ask, God, how do you want to redeem this person? Earlier, uh, I asked, what kind of meal reminds you of home? And for me, the type of food that um, has really reminded me of home the last few years is Korean food. Uh, Korean food was something I enjoyed growing up, but it was also something I was actually really embarrassed by. Right? I remember I would see kids at school growing up who, if they didn't have a quote-unquote normal American lunch, right, which is like sandwich, Doritos, Capri Sun, uh, you know, um, that was my definition of normal American lunch, right? Uh, they, they would get, kind of get made fun of. They would get teased for the lunches that they had. And 99% of the time, my parents immigrated as teenagers, so they kind of knew, like, let's give this kid a sandwich, Doritos, Capri Sun, maybe a Lunchable, whatever. 99% um, of the time, that was my lunch. But, you know, my mom is a mom. She had two other sons. Uh, sometimes she would get busy, and so sometimes she would just pack Korean leftovers. Like I said, not, this is like 1% of the time. But on those very rare occasions when my mom would basically, instead of Doritos, sandwich, Capri Sun, she would pack pugogi and rice. Pugogi is Korean barbecue. And if you haven't had it, uh, I encourage you to have it. It's really delicious. Um, but even though this was a meal that I loved, even though this was a meal that my mom prepared for me, I would just get embarrassed about it when lunchtime rolled around. And I remember one time I even like, I pulled out the Tupperware, I saw the condensation around the Tupperware, and I just knew... I knew exactly what was about to happen. And as soon as I opened up my lunch, I just almost immediately, like clockwork, Kevin brought dog meat to school, look at his lunch. And I remember I closed the Tupperware, I put it back in my bag and said, I think I would just rather be hungry today. Right? But fast forward to college, and I, something happened. I really began to miss Korean food, actually. Uh, Southern California has some of the best Korean food, actually, outside of Korea, in my opinion. Uh, I'm really jealous of my older brother. He actually lives in K-Town, so sometimes I, like, I see the really good Korean food he's eating, I'm just like, that looks delicious. Um, and it, it was just, just this really weird thing. I began to really miss Korean food, and I start, started to like, think, you know, I, I want my kids to be able to learn to enjoy and love for Korean food. So I started looking up Korean recipes and how to cook Korean food and learning more and more about Korean food, right? This past summer, I actually asked some students who had graduated from our ministry, from our high school group, 
to meet up at the Kogi Taco Truck. Uh, Kogi Taco Truck was a taco truck founded by Roy Choi, and his truck was a big part of like the modern food truck movement. We have a picture of it here. Yeah, it's, uh, he took advantage of Twitter right after the recession, and his truck just exploded, and is the reason why you see so many food trucks today, actually. And um, Kogi is actually Korean for meat, right? And Roy is a Korean-American immigrant who grew up in LA. So LA, in addition to being known for its Korean food, is also known for its tacos. And so he said, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make something here. I'm gonna make a Korean barbecue taco. And you can kind of see here, you have some like kimchi vegetables, basically. You have some bulgogi underneath the vegetables as well. And even the fact that, and it's really cool actually, he, so he took the two things from his upbringing, from his environment, and created something new. And if you know Roy Choi's story, actually, his parents were immigrants as well, and they owned a restaurant. Uh, Korean-American uh, Im immigrants, Asian-American immigrants, when they opened up restaurants here in America, it wasn't because that's what they wanted to do. It's because they gave up their own jobs as business, successful business owners, as doctors, lawyers, whatever it may be, and cooking their food was the only jobs that they could find. So for Roy Choi even says this, I think, I think my parents would rather I be an average CPA than a successful chef. And yet he takes all of those parts of his identity as an Asian American, as someone who lives in Los Angeles, lives in California, and he creates, created something new out of it. When God creates something new in our identity, it's not newness so that we can look like other people. When I'm hoping that our students, you know, we have a student getting baptized, Michaela, today. Uh, well, in her new identity in Christ, I hope she doesn't look like me. <laughs> I really hope she doesn't look like me. I want to see the newness that God is going to do in her life. God takes, being a redemptive witness is not about making someone look like me. It's about using the tension, using the brokenness, using every single part of our story and making something new. So if we want to seek the shalom of the city, if we want to be redemptive witness, I just want to ask you today, look for, how, look for the areas that lack shalom. There's so many areas in our world that don't have shalom. And ask yourselves, how, not, don't ask yourselves, how do I make this look more like me? Ask yourself, how does God want to make something new today? Let's close in prayer. Father God, I want to thank you for the fact that you are not a God of just our own making, that you are a God who is making all things new. I want to thank you for the fact, Lord, that you don't just reject all parts of our story. You don't just pump us through an assembly line, Lord, but you know our stories so well, each and every part of it. And in it's all part of your story of newness and seeking shalom. So I pray as we go about this week, we wouldn't just seek after our own personal shalom. We wouldn't just seek after our own personal good, but that you would open our eyes to the areas in our world that truly lack shalom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.